You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Well, I just want to say to you this morning from a pastor's heart, when a pastor looks out at his congregation, he wants so much when you stand before the Lord for you to have everything God wants you to have. And I think a lot of times we don't think about that. The longer I live, the longer I've been saved, I'm convinced God wants more for me than I even want for myself. And that I don't even have the ability to always prioritize the things in my life and which one should really be first. And so this morning I want to invite you to Matthew chapter 7 and we can deal with for a little while this morning what I think fathers sometimes miss and it's very important for our families. And I want to remind you that the initial design of anything has a purpose and the great satisfaction is when that which is designed fulfills the purpose for which it was built. Now we have all these cars in a parking lot and I know they do a host of things. You can listen to music on it, maybe stay cool if the engine's running, but if that car will not leave this parking lot today, and it never leaves the parking lot, no matter how many times you use it, you're not going to have it very long. Um, it's going to be traded for another one, or it's probably going to go to the wrecking yard. That would probably only be fair. A car is primarily designed for transportation. I fear that in our homes, that sometimes we as men forget what God designed us for. And there's all kinds of things that we can do in life. But the main thing we're going to be judged for first, other than the fact is, you know, knowing Christ is our Savior, is did we do what God initially designed us for? Could we stand and we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7 beginning in verse 24. If you'll follow along silently as I read audibly. And with the proposition, build your house on the rock and build it with authority. Build your house on the rock and build it with authority. Verse 24 of Matthew 7. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and it will, and the floods came, and they will, they're happening in America even now, and the winds blew, and it does, and beat upon that house, somewhat of a contest. And it fell not, for it was founded 
upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And as in the other verse, the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Verse 28. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were, and the word is, astonished at his doctrine. That's a strong word. I would wish that I could preach in such a way that people would be astonished in the right way. I'm sure that some of those preachers at times have astonished people in reverse. But I'm just saying that these verses astonished the people. Now let's see one reason why, or the major reason, verse 29, for. This is the reason. He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have to be together this morning. Now, thank you already for the warmth I feel with this church family, their kindness, graciousness. I pray now that you would illumine our hearts and minds to understand Bible truth. But then as we understand it, we'd realize it's incumbent on us to adhere to it. I thank you for all these men. Their life is not easy. I know it's not for the ladies either, and I'll address that some more this evening. But I thank you for them who stand as a vanguard for their families. And so, Lord, if you'd illumine our hearts and minds and whatever can be accomplished by our being together, we would never make a reputation of ourselves, but we'd give you all the glory and all the praise for you only are worthy. We ask it in the most gracious name. Amen. And you may be seated. Now the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. I suppose most of you are familiar with that. And the Sermon on the Mount has been referred to as the Christian Manifesto by G. Campbell Morgan. Now the Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx tells us what a communist should be and what a communist should do. And there's no place in the Bible that more, no more concisely than this section of Scripture that tells us what a Christian should be and what a Christian should do. William Barclay says that the Sermon on the Mount in the Two Testament is what the Ten Commandments is in the Old Testament. And we know how important that that is. And some commentators, and I think they might be right, feels like that these last few verses of the Sermon on the Mount is really just kind of a digest or a compendium of everything that we have learned through the whole Sermon on the Mount. Now when we think about this house, we realize that the Lord is not overly concerned with physical houses. Now, you know, the house of God is concerned that it's used for what it ought to be used for, but now this is talking about, you know, the building of it and the sense of what its design is for. 
I'm just saying as far as houses that can withstand a storm and those that cannot, physically speaking, is not the primary reference or idea here. We're talking about the family. Now in Genesis chapter 46, and you need not turn there, in verse 27 refers to the house of Jacob. We're not referring to three bedrooms and two baths. When we're talking about the house of Jacob, and I, I think that you know it, it's called the house of Jacob. And then in Genesis chapter 15, verse 8, there is reference to the house of Joseph. In Exodus chapter 2, in verse 1, does the same thing with the house of Levi. And when you get all the way over to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 5, it refers to the house of Moses and then refers to us in Jesus' house of whose house we are. So you've got in your, get in your mind right now, when we're seeing the word house, it might be better, at least for this morning, to insert the word family because a reference here to the house is the family and you'll find this you know, throughout the word of God. The biggest problem, and I think you saw it right up front, both of these men heard the same thing. Word for word, they heard the same instruction and there was just one primary difference. One man heard it and did it. Another man heard it and did not do it. Now, I suppose that may be true in almost every time there's a church service. I don't know. I would not know. One thing I do enjoy about being a guest speaker someplace is I don't know you. I'd be happy to know you. In heaven, I will know you. I love fellowship. I never get tired of being with people. What I mean by that is when I preach this truth, I can look you in the face and I have no idea what you're doing with your family, with you men. I look at you men and I don't know if you're leading your family right or not. Obviously, I can tell the difference in a male and a female. That's more than some people can do. But in my mind, when we use the word man, we're talking about more than just a male species. Because I think you can be a male species, and I know some people don't like this, and I'm sorry, but one thing about being a man is you just need to be able to handle it. And God wants us to be a man. God thought a lot about his man. And I'm trying to leave the ladies out. And again, we'll visit with that a little bit this evening. But it's Father's Day, and it's a Father's Day message. And the book of Job, what an amazing book in the Bible. I'm always interested in reading the book of Job. And I want to tell you there was a man. As a matter of fact, Satan came before the Lord and he asked him, and I'm just, you know, just kind of paraphrasing this to Satan, what, what have you been doing? And he basically said, I've been walking to and fro throughout the whole earth. I think his difference is, and I've not really been impressed with much of anything. And what did God say? <laughs> I might have said, have you seen the Grand Canyon? Mount Everest? God didn't. He said, have you seen my man, Job, that there's none like him in the earth, and an upright man that escheweth evil, a perfect man in the sense of being mature. God loves his men and made them in a way to accomplish the purpose that he wants to get done. And here we have two men. 
and they both have a family. Now, not every man has a family responsible for it. Or those that live the single life, and Scripture suggests that maybe for some people that's what God intended. But most of us will have a family. So, when we think about this authority, we could ask ourselves exactly how it is faring. But you notice they were astonished. And the Scripture says the reason was because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Sometimes it's better to define something by what it is and what it's not. Here he's defining what it's not. And you probably know this, but the scribes knew the Word of God. Chances are they could quote a lot more of it than you could or I could. They gave their life being involved in the Word of God and writing books and things about it, but they were missing something. The scribes had no authority. You say, what do you mean they had no authority? The people didn't put a lot of stock in what they said. You can know the Word of God, and if you don't abide by it and live by it, you will not carry through with the authority of the Word of God. Somewhere outside are some big transformers, and farther down the road, you know, some power plants, and they're feeding the air conditioning and the lights and all these things are glad. But you can flip a switch and kill all of this. And men, that's the way it works. When you know the Word of God and you don't adhere to it, you just turn the switch off. And then people say, I don't know why our families are not doing better, why our sons and our daughters are not doing better. I've had them in church their whole life. But dad flipped the switch off too many times. I've read a number of books on men because I love working with men. In fact, is some of the best authors I've written have said the single greatest problem in all of Christian America is passive fathers. Not doing what they were designed to do. What were they designed to do, Brother Hardy? To lead. To lead. To give their family direction. If I define it a little bit more as far as passive, my dad was fairly passive. He was a good dad. I loved my dad. It's a wonder I didn't get in a lot of trouble because he was passive. He said, we ain't passive. He didn't say much. Now, my dad only had a third grade education, couldn't read, but, he, but he, was, he was put together good. It looked like a forklift without wheels. And if he had said do something, David Hardy would have done it. He just didn't say. And I made a lot of decisions for myself that my father should not have let me make. And the culture we live in now and the society is doing all it can to make men feel like you should never say anything. I don't care what the culture is doing. You better pay attention to the word of God. And he has designed you men to lead. And if you stand before God and you've not led, you're in major trouble right up front. I want everything God has for me. And the Bible makes it very plain, you know. Eyes never seen, ears never heard. All the thing God has prepared for those that love him. 
And I can't help what everybody else thinks and whether they think I'm right in the decisions I make, but if I've got a thus saith the Lord, I have a great obligation at that point. Maybe I could illustrate, and this is an old sermon. I'm when you say old, what do you mean? Well, I think I first preached it about 40 years ago. Some of y'all, that's not old, and some of y'all didn't exist. So how about in our streets? How's it going? How's authority doing in our streets? I remember as a kid, we could ride our bicycles five, six, seven miles away from home, and our parents never thought a thing about it because there wasn't anything that happened to us. And I remember you could go to a park anytime you wanted to go. And we'd travel around and get in the city, and I'd say, hey, you got a park around here, a little jogging trail or something? Oh, yeah, but how many times I've heard this? Don't go there at night. Authority's gone from our streets. You know why it's gone from our streets? Because of politicians and people like that have taken it out of our courts. And our policemen were respected when I was a young man. I still respect them and thank God for them. Now toleration's about the best they can hope for. Now you can look out there and say them, what about your kids? They respect them. You say, well, they don't do everything right. No, but neither do you, my friend. And they're trying to carry out a job. Some of the cities are already learning now that they, it's good to have them. In some ways, it's going from the medical community. I kind of like the day when the doctor I had was a doctor that worked for himself at his business. And he looked at me and cared about me. And like a detective, he was going to figure out what was going on with me. And I'm sorry if you're not happy about the comment with Big Pharma today. Our doctors have to run so many people through. They work for somebody else. Government's made so much paperwork, they can't hardly afford to pay anybody to come in there so they can function with all the insurance and Social Security and all of that. And back when I was just a kid, if your doctor had appendicitis, and I mentioned that in Sunday school, he told me, your son, you're going to have surgery. You're going to be there four days and coming out. And it's happened exactly the way he said. And today... Your doctor may say you're probably going to be in the hospital for six or seven days and some high school dropout a thousand miles away working for an insurance company says you're out of there in three and you will be. I think some of you know that. I can see by your heads. God help our military. If our military back in World War II had to put up with what they had to put up with now, you wouldn't be sitting here. You probably wouldn't be speaking English. You can't, in a time of war, pull people over and look at their driver's license. They want our military to police the world. We have police people. Let the rest of the world get their own police. America can't run and pay for this whole world and try to get it done. But it's gone there too. It's gone from our schools there was a day when Christian schools were unnecessary. Nally Elementary School in Waco, Texas on a gravel road. And no, I didn't walk to school barefooted in the snow, so we're only going to go so far with this. I'm going to tell the truth. And it only had three rooms in it, plus a little cafeteria and so forth, and we had six grades there and two grades in each one, and I remember going to school. 
And the first thing we did every morning, and I did it in pride, sometimes I almost would cry and pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. A nation under God. You know the second thing we did? We stood and recited the Lord's Prayer. Everybody in that class. And guess what? We all wanted to. Now, I remember going to our little lunch room and my cousin was only one year away from me on school. We weren't in the same grade, but before we prayed, he reached over there and put his finger on one of those jelly jars and he got it <laughs> because we hadn't prayed yet for our meal. Public school. Like that old saying, we've come a long way, baby. And it's a wrong direction. Absolutely. We have good teachers that, that I personally have known that wanted so much to spend their whole life in the public school system and teach. Because the class was so really nobody could learn. Unruly, they couldn't learn. And had to worry about their own safety at times. Authority has gone from a lot of our churches. Churches becoming entertainment centers. G. Kimmel Morgan again, you said you already mentioned him. He's my favorite New Testament commentator, probably. He said the difference, uh, Morgan said, the difference in churches in the first century and the 21st century is that preachers in the first century preached to people. And preachers in the 21st century preach in front of people. Now, I don't need to get myself in trouble, but I can rant and rail and spit and stomp all over the place here and just kind of look all over the place. Or I can kind of look in such a way, and you know I'm talking to you. You don't have any trouble understanding that, do you? But it's gone. And churches are no more having the effect. You know why? Scribes. Authority is gone. And not only that, once you get past a church, it's gone from uh, it's gone from our homes. There's a really good book out just titled Authority by Eugene Kennedy and Sarah Charles. And they said, and I quote, understanding, transmitting, and supporting natural or healthy authority is the fundamental responsibility of the family. Now, do you understand what the word fundamental means? It's pretty much synonymous with the word essential. In other words, there are some things that are fluff, and they may be nice to have, and it's okay to have, but you don't have to have it. But when you say fundamental, and that's the reason we sometimes have called ourselves fundamental Baptists, is that we primarily want to base everything on the essentials of the Word of God. And he's saying, what is being said here? Dad's what he's saying here is, of all the things you do, one of the great essentials is to transmit godly authority into your home and into your family. It's a blessing to be around young people who have a dad that does that. There's not a great number 
But when you think about authority and God's design for men, when you think of authority, you could think of the word author. Do those two words have something in similar? Come from the same root? Because uh, an author is the one that conceives the book. He writes the book. He looks for the publisher of it. He, he's right up front trying to get something to take place as a dad should be in the home. And when you think of authority, you think of father because father means seed and it means source and it means beginning. It means direction. It means counsel. It means all these things. I love being one, but it'll take your breath away. And I'm not claiming to be everything I should be as a father, but I want to be. I was just texting my son this morning and he had texted me first for Father's Day and it's hard to realize I have a son that's 57 years old and his son sitting over here and I'm so proud of him. He loves, he'll die for that young man right here that y'all call Samuel. But I've never seen Samuel be rebellious against his father. But that's not really all Samuel's credit because if he had had the dad he had, he wouldn't be there and he wouldn't be doing that. And Brielle, thank God for her dad Brother Stephen Payne is a close friend of mine, and he'd raise a godly mate. But when you think of authority, don't think of authoritarianism, and I know that word is a little slippery. Don't think of authoritarianism in the sense of a despot. Someone who just wants to be mean, someone who just wants to be hard on everybody else. That's not what we're talking about. I'm a little bit of a student of World War II probably for a couple of reasons. One, my dad fought in World War II. All my uncles fought in World War II. My favorite general was Douglas MacArthur, and his mother was a Hardy. So that kind of had me reading on Douglas Mary Pinkney, Hardy. And so I just think about all the things that happened in World War II and what those men had to put up with. And I never could understand some of the things that happened, some of the atrocities and more. I've been to Germany about eight times, been to um, death camp and so forth. I read a pretty thick book like that on the Nazi doctors and so forth. And by the way, anything that any other man has done, I have the capability of doing. You do too. And we may look at someone out here that doesn't understand what the Bible says about homosexuality and things. And you can say, well, those guys, my sin put Christ on the cross all by myself. I'm not trying to be unfair with anybody else. But I couldn't understand how soldiers could take machine guns and line up children and and mothers and pregnant mothers and after the, the ditch has been dug and mow them down with a machine gun and then push them in and cover them up. American soldiers were never guilty of that. And they did not do everything perfectly and I, I couldn't understand it. But they finally read enough. And I'm always picking on the man right on the front here, so, so what do you get for sitting here? <laughs> and he's a German soldier for now and they said, you're going to kill all these. And he says, I'm not going, I will not do it. And they say, you got a wife at home? You've got children? You want to see them again? And you do what I say. That's Adolf Hitler. 
He was inhumane when it came to those things. It was just, you know, just completely unbelievable. So that's not what I'm talking about when I'm saying authority. Now, authoritarianism is not always a bad word, but it's moving in that direction. But he was a despot of what he did. When you think about World War II, there was another man. I could probably give you thoughts and you could tell me his name. He made some big statement one time, something like, we will fight them in the air. We'll fight them on the land. We'll fight them on the sea. I have nothing to offer you but blood, sweat, and tears, but we will never, never, never give up. Knew who that was, don't you? Winston Churchill. And so they say, if you look at the whole picture, Germany really should have won. But you've got to remember that everything we do in life, somebody else is involved in it. So fathers, we want to have authority. We don't want to be like a Hitler. And I suppose me saying that could cause some other person to call you that or a young person if they wanted to be that way. But you know the difference. And God knows the difference. That means if you and God are on the same page, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference what somebody else thinks about it. Whether it's another person, whether it's your son, whether it's your daughter, or somebody else in life. When men don't exercise authority in their homes and everything, a lot of different things probably can really take place. And I know a good number of you just from talking to you, you know your Bible fairly well and so forth, but if we think back now in the Bible, and we'll not turn there, I suppose we could take time to do that. But remember we had Adam and Eve, and uh, if you're in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 17 and others, you don't, but I think you know, and you can check this later in the earlier pages of that, uh, God made Adam first, and he made Adam the leader of his family, and then he made a helpmate, and thank God. I... 59 years plus with this woman right here. I will work myself to death for her. I'll protect her. I'll die for her. Amen. Humanly speaking, she's the most valuable thing possibly that I could ever have. But my job's a little different than hers. And she's got all she can do. She's got her hands full as a wife and has as a mother and now as a grandmother and as a great-grandmother. But God told Adam early on, and he made a beautiful garden. <laughs> I can't imagine what it looks like. The reason I can is everything I touch dies if it's a plant, so. <laughs> I don't have a green thumb. I don't know what color it is. But I do love creation. Isn't it something? Amen. Singing that last song, Samuel. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest. Sun, stars, and moon in their courses above. Look at it all going around. Join with all nature in manifold witness, you know, of his great uh, mercy and love. And I love all that God has made. But he said, uh, Adam, I've made all of this and it's yours. But I'm reserving me one tree. Adam, you can't have anything on that tree. Now, God gives us those options to preserve our free will. I don't care what anybody else tells you about everything's predetermined. 
God's sovereignty is true. It's in the Bible. And man's free will is true. They're both in the Bible. You say, but you can't put it together. The man who wrote it can put it together. There's some things we're never going to fully comprehend. And he said, don't eat from this tree. You say, how many trees were there? I don't know. Didn't make any difference, does it? The Bible suggests a lot. Well, it seemed like Adam did pretty good, but Adam, God directly gave that command to Adam. Eve is maybe evidently not on that scene. I would think maybe she knew later on. And when Satan shows up, he doesn't confront Adam. I don't know why he did that. We can all speculate, but none of us really know. But I'm sure you've heard something like this. If you have an enemy that can't get to you, he'll get to somebody who can get to you. If Satan can't get me, maybe he'll come after my wife. If Satan can't get me, maybe he'll come after my children. And I think you already know that. That's true in the world that we live in. I don't know how much time went by, but Satan does show up and he confronts Eve. He does not confront Adam. Now, I'm not giving Adam a free ride. I'm fixing to nail his hide. Because if you read it real careful, the Bible says the fruit was beautiful to look on and something to make people wise. Now, Satan can't tempt us with anything if it's not desirable. It will be very desirable. And who wouldn't want to have more knowledge and something good to eat or whatever the case? But she took it. Here's what some people haven't noticed in the Bible. And she gave it to her husband who was with her. She didn't eat it and then come home with it and it was too late. He was right beside her. You know why you have a fallen nature? Because of a passive dead. He could have said, Eve, no. God's given us everything. And I know you want it. I know it's beautiful and whatever. The, but hon, no. No. But he didn't. He said, well, I haven't been passive very often. No, all it took was one. And you know what? It's no fun to say no. It's always better to want to say yes. But you know the first thing a little child learns that helps them through life? You know what the first word is? And it's not because we tell them no because we want them not to have what they want. It's because we love them. And we know it'll hurt them. And it'll be dangerous for them if that happens. And what I think about is that Adam and Eve had the privilege to walk in the cool of the day in the garden with God and just talk to him. I wish I could do that. But a passive man robbed me of it. And I can't. And you can't either. And I think that's a big price to be paid.
So first of all, when authority is not where it should be, you lose fellowship with God. I think all of you probably know about Eli over in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and those first few chapters and so forth. Remember Eli, he had, he had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. I've not known anybody that named their kids yet, and that's probably good. And they became priests because back in the Old Testament, both things followed, you know, a family line, very domestic. But they were evil. They did wrong things. They did wrong things even in the house of God. See, what Eli do? He said, now boys, I'm paraphrasing, this is not good. You should not be doing that. He kind of slapped her hand. But he did not stop him. And you know what God had to say to him? He said, Eli, your sons are doing things that are wrong and you have elevated your sons above me. And that's exactly what he did. I think that hurts families that dads have elevated another family member. We're not above God and they're not above God. God is God and nobody's God but God. And he's very fair and long-suffering. So what happened? So and then the Philistines came on the scene. And of course there was a great battle. Hophni and Phinehas were killed in the battle. And Phineas's wife was great with child. And all of this is happening at once. And she died in the process of having that child as the battle was taking place. And then someone comes back and Eli is sitting on a big rock, the Bible says, and he wants to know the news of what's happening out of the war. He said, uh, the runner that came, Hophni and Phinehas, your two sons are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. And when he said that, it hit Eli so hard, he fell off the rock backwards and, and it broke his neck. And he died. And he says, the ark of God's been taken and the glory has been departed. And that little boy that was born whose mother's died in the process and his dad died in the battle, they called him Ichabod. His name means the glory hath departed. Eli did a lot of good things, but he was passive. And if he had been after those boys early on, you know, that would have never happened. These things we pick up in life. Build your house on the rock, but build it with authority. Not authoritarianism, not despotism. That's not what we want. I read a story in a Reader's Digest. It probably would be at least 40 years ago now as I think about it that I never did forget. Back when my son was a teenager, he was beyond those early years, but he was a teenager story took place in Arkansas. I lived in Oklahoma at the time, of course, and I loved going over in the Ozarks and loved those hills and driving around those curves and things like that. And so as it goes, the story goes, uh, 
a father and a son were out for a drive, and we're talking about now back in the 50s and 60s of when the article was written in referencing to beautiful spring day, windows are rolled down, dad's driving, his little boy was five or six, I don't remember, on the right-hand side, enjoying the ride with their arm up in the window and no seatbelts because they didn't have any seatbelts. Not going really fast, but about 50 miles an hour, and came around one of those curves, and some truck had spilled oil all over the curve, all over the road. And when they came around, then it was a Pontiac, one of those two-door hardtop Pontiacs, and it slid sideways, and there was no ditch or anything. The ground was level, and that was good, but it was a mixture of grass and gravel. He had been on a paved road, but this was grass and gravel. And when the car slid at 50 miles an hour, sideways, it rolled. And it threw the father out. And he hit the ground and, and it roughed him up, but he got up and he looked over and the car was sitting, it rolled twice. And he saw it sitting over there and it looked like his son was sitting right in the seat where he was before. And he jumped up and he ran over there to look in the window and when he got close to the car, he heard something like bacon frying. And he looked and they hit a power line and it had fallen right on top of the car. And the little boy there is obviously, you know, all shook up. But he's still sitting right where he was before. And he looks up and he sees his dad in the window. And he reaches for the doorknob and his dad said, no, son. Don't move. Took 40 minutes for someone to cut the power. What if the little boy had grabbed that metal handle? And his dad would have watched it. If that little boy had died, look at me, men. Who killed him? You say, well, Brother Hardy, what would you expect a boy to do after something like that? I'd expect him to do exactly what his dad said. Is that how it's going? Little boys, big boys want to have a dad who does his very best to be a good leader that loves them, spends time with them. But a boy like for his dad to be a man. One last story. A good friend in Chickasha, Oklahoma, many years ago, probably 45 years ago, having a missions conference with him his house, where you came in the front door, was kind of like a hallway, but it opened up then to a kitchen and a little bit of a family room with a sofa, but there was kind of a wall there, and we were sitting on that sofa, and there's a TV, and there was some news or something, and we were just sitting there, and it was close enough that you could change channels. We didn't have, you know, it was amazing. It's one of those little things you turned, and everybody could figure it out. Always worked. His son came home from football practice. He was a junior and he's a big boy. His name was Gary. Kind of reddish haired. Still had his uniform stuff. It looked like a gorilla coming in there. And he walked in. And of course, he had to walk right between us in the hallway. That's, he couldn't help that. But he reached over and turned the channel because there was a game on. And his dad's a real slow talking guy. And he said, Gary. Brother Hardy and I were watching that. You can watch it when we get through. And he's a 
about a six foot three guy. He just reached up and kind of turned it back. And he said, Dad, I just, I need to check and see the score. And the second time he reached over and turned it. And Brother Adam's a real slow talking guy. And he said, Dear Gary, now son, I know you want to see it, but we're watching this first. Your time will come. And he turned it back. And the third time, Gary reached over and turned it. My friend stood up and he said, uh, Gary, let's go back to your room. I really wanted to go, but nobody invited me. So anyway, I never did know. Nearly two years went by and I was at youth camp and Gary had graduated from high school now and had gone to Montana to work on a ranch. And I'm at the Texoma youth camp back then and he came up to me, Brother Adams did, the pastor. He said, hey, Hardy, I want you to read this paragraph. I said, okay. I didn't know what I was going to read. He said, hey, Dad, you remember when Brother Hardy was at our church doing a missions conference and I came in and y'all were watching something and I turned the channel and you told me, and I, he said, I turned it three times and I went back, to, you took me back to my room. Well, I, so I know what happened. I read it. He said, uh, so what happened is Brother Adam took back there and he said right in front of me, he said, now Gary, I want you to get ready and get your best shot. I'm going to give you the first shot. And then I'm going to bust your face. I'm not going to spank you. You're a man now and I'm going to whip you like a man. I'm going to give you the first shot. And a tear came into Gary's eye and said, Dad, I can't hit you. He said, then you're going to do what I say. The rest, I read the rest of his letter, and here's the last part. He said, Dad, if you hadn't have done that, I'd lost all respect for you as a man. Now, your boys, either got a man for a dad or something else. Boy's got a mama. He loves his mama. And don't ever ask him to choose. Don't ever do that. <laughs> but what he wants for a dad is a man. This all stand. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.